0: So the title of this morning's sermon, if you read the email, was From Mud to Glory. And sure enough, God wanted, wanted to put this to the test, and so, uh, so I got sick. <laughs> and you can probably hear it a little bit in my voice. Uh, sometimes it's nasally, sometimes it makes my voice deeper. I sound like Tom Mullins, which is nice. But, you know, depending on what, I apologize for, for how the voice sounds, um, But I feel like mud. (laughs) I feel like mud right now. It's all mud stuck in my head. and um, So don't talk to me after the service if you don't want to get sick. I'll just kind of hang out behind here. Um, But I think he could turn it into glory. I think he could even take um, all the mud that's in me and turn it into glory. So we'll see. So this is a great experiment to see what comes out. And of course, this title comes from This great story that we read about last week and Ryan preached on last week that that ends up being actually a story about spiritual blindness, but there's so much in this chapter 9, this story of a man born blind who Jesus comes and heals by spitting on the dirt, creating with his saliva some mud, placing it on the man's eyes, and then telling the man to go down to the pool of Siloam and wash himself and he will regain his sight. And the man does this, and a man born blind is healed by Jesus. He gets his physical sight back, but not just his physical sight. As Ryan said last week, his spiritual blindness was turned into spiritual sight, and he sees his Savior, the Messiah, the Son of Man, in the flesh, and he worships him. It's a beautiful story. We also have the naysayers. Ryan talked about the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jerusalemites, the, those who were in charge, that had the political power and the, and, the, and the religious power of the day, and they just can't see Jesus for who he is. They're spiritually blind. Though they think they can see, they've got mud on their eyes too. And the man tries to tell his story, and he, but I don't want you to miss the whole uh, story and how why John tells this story, which is the story of spiritual blindness and Jesus coming to give the world spiritual light. But there's so many other little aspects that I think are beautiful in here that I'm going to touch on. So go listen to Ryan's sermon, and hopefully even my sermon will take on more, more meaning, more fullness for you. So today, what I'm going to do is I'm not even going to read the, the passage. I'm just going to read the parts of of the chapter that I'm going to be speaking on as we go. And I'm going to be focusing on three things. The first is glory and how glory doesn't make sense. And then I'm going to share how God includes us and we become the we that Jesus speaks about, the do the works of glory in the world. And then I'm going to finish by talking about how to reveal his glory, God in his infinite wisdom realizes that. Glory becomes most obvious when the most transformation happens. And, of course, the man born blind is a great example of real transformation, real change, and how this brings glory to God. So that's where we're going to go, and it's going to be fun. Um, We're going to unpack this good news, this gospel that God has revealed to us through this story, through John chapter 9. And so we'll start by focusing on this idea of glory. So would you read with me, starting in John chapter 9, verse 18. So this is after Jesus has spit on the ground, made this mud, put it on the man's eyes, sent him down to the pool of Siloam to wash. The man gets his sight. People start realizing, hey, isn't this the man that was born blind? And then then he has already been interviewed by the the religious leaders of Jerusalem who don't believe him, and they're going to come back to him a second time. And interrogate him once more. So let's start in verse 18 and read to verse 25. Are you ready? So here we go. Okay. So the Jews did not believe this about him, about the man born blind. They didn't believe that he was blind and received sight. Until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. So they asked his parents, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son, they said, and that, he has, and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus as the Messiah, that he would be banned from the synagogue. Kick out of church if you confess that Jesus was the Messiah. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So now, if you're new with us, this is your first time, whenever John, the writer of the Gospel of John, whenever he says the Jews, he's, he's usually speaking about this group of sort of elites in Jerusalem. These would be the Pharisees or the Sadducees. These are sort of the political and religious leaders of the community. So they had a lot of power. They had a lot to lose if people started following Jesus and not looking to them for guidance and wisdom and, and giving them the power. And so, so they, they have all the reason in the world to try to disprove that Jesus is who he said he was, which is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of Israel. Okay? Okay, so they said, go ask him. We don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. We know you guys have all the power. But I'm. But he was born blind, and it, and he can now see. So, you should ask him who did that. Okay. So, verse twenty-four. So a second time, they—that's the Jewish leaders—summoned the man who had been blind and told him, "Give glory to God." So, so they already—they just assume that uh, Jesus isn't who he said he was, and so they just go to him a second time, and they and they threaten this man, probably with, as we'll see, excommunication, kicking him out of the synagogue, kicking him out of the community. And that was a big deal back then. Much bigger deal this than now. You can go just like down the street to the other church. I mean, you're done. You're out. You've got a scarlet letter. And so they try to bully him into, and they use this interesting phrase. Ryan mentioned this last week. Give glory to God. So, What are they saying here? Then they go on to say, we know that this man, Jesus, we know that Jesus is a sinner. And look what the man says. He answers them. Whether whether or not he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. And Ryan talked about this at the end of his sermon last week. I loved it. It's like the simplicity here of the blind man. He's like, listen, I don't talk about things that I know nothing about. I only talk about what I do know, and what I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. And that's great, great advice for us when, when asked to give a defense to who Jesus is or, or what he's done. Uh, for the most part, for most of us, we just simply speak of what we know, which is, I was this way, and now I'm this way, and it was because I spent time with Jesus, and he did this. Okay. So the thing I want to pull out of this passage that I find so fascinating is this little, this little phrase when, when the Jewish elites come to the man born blind and they say, give glory to God. Which, you know, I would say, amen. That's like the chief end of every human being is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we glorify Him by enjoying Him. So glorifying God is, is a good thing. But they're trying to do is put prescription on what glorifying God means or can't mean. And to them, they think giving credit to Jesus cannot be glorifying God. They want the man to say, God healed me, not Jesus. Okay. So, to kind of understand, I think, what's really interesting about this, uh, let me explain to you what glory is. So the Greek word for glory is doxa. And doxa, used elsewhere in Greek literature of the time, means the condition of being bright or shining. It means brightness. It means splendor. It means radiance. It's a state of being magnificent or great. Splendor. Anything that catches the eye. It can also mean honor as enhancement. Or recognition of status or performance. So things like fame, recognition, renown, prestige. So when we say give glory to God, what are we saying? We're saying give God the honor. Give him the shine, so to speak. Now, the question you should be asking yourself is, does God need us to give him something that he doesn't already have? And the answer is no. We don't make God more glorious. We just reveal that which he already is. So God doesn't need us to make him something that he wants to become. He, to the rightful owner of that glory. And it's Jesus, the son of God. Now, that would have been and was taken by the religious leaders as blasphemy. How could what is due to God be given to a mere man? And that's what John is doing throughout his whole gospel. He's showing that Jesus isn't a mere man. Jesus is the God-man. God become flesh who walked among us, lived among us, revealed who he was through his signs and wonders so that people could turn to him and see that in him is life and light for the world. So, I love how the man says it. He says, listen, I'm not a theologian. I don't know this guy. He just showed up in my life. I don't know whether he's a sinner. We know that Jesus was not a sinner from elsewhere, but he doesn't know that. All he knows is that I was blind and now I can see. And this simple act of just saying what happened to him is glorifying God. And it's glorifying God in Jesus. So if that's glorifying God... uh, If that's what glorifying God means, the man might say, well, then I guess I'm doing that. So I guess this Jesus is God. He is the Son of Man. And later he says that. So this sort of illuminates a pivotal principle that I don't think can be overstated. Uh, Because in our world today, you might find people who give glory to God. And they say, I'm just giving God the glory. And the question that comes through this passage and elsewhere is, can you continue to give glory to God without locating that glory, or or at least believing that that glory was most revealed through the person of Jesus? Does that question make sense? It's funny that I said that, by the way. (laughs) So I'm about to make fun of myself for saying, does that make sense? It's right in my notes, right? Like two paragraphs later. Can you glorify God while simultaneously denying that Jesus was sent by God? Can you? It's an interesting question. I think we want to say in our pluralistic society that you could. But has God left that option open for us? If he's revealed his glory most fully in the person of Jesus, can we still glorify him while denying that Jesus is sent by God? I think this passage and others would lead us to say no. We might think we're glorifying God, but to deny how God has chosen to reveal himself is not to glorify him, but to deny glory for him. Okay. God reveals his own glory. It's his, and it's his to reveal in very specific ways. And Jesus is the most specific way. So we cannot glorify him while denying how he's revealed himself. We don't get to tell God how he must reveal or what he must reveal. We simply live in the world of revelation as he's revealed it. But that doesn't make sense, you might say. That's right. (laughs) Glory doesn't make sense. It's more impressive than that. Let me say that again. Glory doesn't make sense. It's more impressive than that. I really wrestled with this idea because of what just happened. I accidentally said the thing that I always say, which, if you've known me long enough, is what? Does that make sense? I love to make sense of the gospel for people. I love to make sense. But God just like slapped me on the side of the head and said, My glory doesn't make sense in the way you often say makes sense. It's more impressive than that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Christian worldview or the gospel is nonsensical, it's just beyond mere sense. The glory of God, the glory of God, transcends our common sense. Otherwise, it wouldn't be the glory, it'd just be a glory. See what I'm saying? Does that make sense? <laughs> and I so, I so struggle. I know I'm not the only one in the room because I talk to y'all. I love y'all. And there's many of us in the room who need everything to make sense before we'll give our life to it. That's not the way the glory of God works. The glory reveals itself, and we must respond to it, even before it makes sense. If we could explain or make sense of God's glory, that would be lesser glory than what we are. You see? The greater glory must always reveal itself to the lesser glory. Only the greater can reveal itself to the lesser. But once the greater glory comes, it can help us make sense of the lesser glories without being redefined by them. This is what the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ means. The glory took on lesser glory so that the lesser glory around the glory might be caught up in the greater glory, but it could only happen in that direction. We cannot build ourselves up to God. as Tower Babel. We will always come short. We cannot somehow stack up enough common sense or small glories to make our way to the glory. doesn't work like that the glory must always come down to our level, reveal himself, and then sweep us up into the greater. And this is the dynamic that's at play right here with the Jews and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And we even see it with the disciples, right? They're trying to make sense of why this man was born blind. to so start the passage, if you remember from last week. They ask Jesus, say, hey, Jesus, why was this man born blind? Help help make sense of it for us. Was was he born blind so that or, or because he sinned? He was born blind, so how did he sin before he was born? Or was it his parents? See, they're trying to make sense of it. And then Jesus comes revealing himself, and the Pharisees can't make sense of it. Well, how did this man, Jesus, heal you? Like, only God could do something like that. How did he do it? They're trying to make sense of it. And Jesus, in, in, one, in, in one way, says, you need to stop trying to make sense of something that can only be revealed to you. I mean, this hit me this week, because I, I, I so want everything to make sense, which is to say faith is hard for me. I think I've got pretty good common sense. I've got, I'm way smarter in common sense than I am in sort of book smarts. And so, so making sense and having sense and being able to make sense of things means so much to me. But God said, Dave, you need to die to that and live to my glory. And by the grace of God, he's done that for me, my whole, uh, particularly in the, in the last 15, 16, 17 years of my life. He has been putting to death this this absolute desire that everything makes sense before I'll grab hold of it and help me to grab hold of it so that he could make sense of it. Thank you, God. And I was a slave to making sense of things. I was a slave to my own common sense. I was a slave to logic and reason. And God freed me by his grace so that I might behold his glory. And by his grace, then, he's walked me towards understanding and sense that I could never have had I not been freed from my need for it. But then he gave it for me on the back end. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel enslaved to making sense of everything. How's it going? Is it working? It didn't work for me but I feel like now I have more sense than I've ever had before. So the glory of God is not synonymous with sense or logic or reason. Sense is not bad, but glory is better. So ask yourself, what do you want more of in your life? Do you want to make sense of everything or do you want to have God's glory in every part of your life? Let me ask it again. Do you want to make sense of everything or do you want to have the the glory of God in every part of your life? And the real kick-ass part of this all, guys, is that if you answer B, you'll also get A. (laughs) Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God And his righteousness, his glory you could add, and all these things will be added to you. When you accept the glory of God as he's revealed it to you in the person of Jesus, and you spend time with this Jesus, and you give yourself to following this Jesus, then you will be able to make sense of so many more things than you ever thought possible. This dynamic I call, you may have heard this before, it's faith seeking understanding versus understanding seeking faith. You cannot make sense all the way to real saving faith. Yes, there's things to be learned, there's intellectual landmines to be removed to help you come to faith, but true understanding flows out of an act of faith. And this passage is a great illustration of it. Why is that? Look at the blind man. Look at the blind man. The blind man in this story illustrates faith-seeking understanding perhaps better than I've ever seen. So let's look at the order of events in his life. The order of events are going to go like this. Hope, faith, sight, increasing understanding. Hope, faith, sight, increasing understanding. First, hope. He dared to consider that Christ's claims might be true. So the story begins. Jesus shows up to this man, the disciples asking him, Why was he born blind? So he, this is a beggar uh, near the temple in Jerusalem, and he's been begging for who knows how long. His parents are still alive, so he's probably not late in life. They say he's of age, you can ask him. So, so perhaps he's been begging for 20 years, let's say. And Jesus comes to him. Now, I can't see Jesus, he only hears his voice, and Jesus comes to him and says, Hold on, I'm going to spit on the ground, I'm going to make some mud, I'm going to put it on your eyes, and you're going to see. It begins with hope. He hopes that Jesus is telling the truth. It's not faith yet, it's still just hope. Do you hope that Jesus is telling you the truth? That he is a God who can transform you and rescue you and change you in the ways you need to and want to be changed... Would you dare to hope that? That's where it starts. What's the next thing that happens? Now, the interesting part of this story. Now, Jesus has in other places in the other Gospels just healed people's sight in the moment. He doesn't hear. He's trying to prove a different point. What does he do? He says, I'm going to put some mud on your eyes that's made from my saliva, which is, you know, how much spit did he have to use this is interesting just to think about. Like mean, this is real. This is dirt and dust mixed with bodily fluid, m- made mud, put it on the eyes. And then he tells the blind man, are you, are you thinking about this story, who's up on the temple mount, which is elevated? And he tells him, okay, you've got mud on your eyes. Now all you have to do to see is walk down to the pool of Siloam. And you'll see does anyone know where the Pool of Siloam is in comparison to the temple? Has anyone been to Israel? To Jerusalem? Let me, I looked it up. I Google mapped it, which is cool. You can do this. How far to walk from the temple to the Pool of Siloam? I did it. I, I looked it up. Okay. Do you want to know how far that is? That's an 18-minute walk in modern times. I think people didn't walk probably as fast. And this is not blind people walking. And not only is it an 18-minute walk through the crowded, crowded streets of Jerusalem during a festival time where like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people flood a city that's not built for them, through the twists and turns of an ancient city, an 18-mile walk in modern times, while blind, and the elevation change, my friends, is 290 feet downhill. It's one thing to walk blind... 290 feet uphill, it's another thing to walk 290 feet downhill. Blind, mud on your eyes. This man walked that walk without ever knowing if the hope he had would be fulfilled in the end. That's faith. Faith means picking up your cross and walking. Faith is not just an intellectual exercise, it's a physical exercise. And this man has faith to walk the walk. We don't know how long it took him. Probably over an hour, if not more. Perhaps he had some people that came along him to help him. Perhaps he didn't. We don't know. But he walked the walk of faith, blind, mud on his eyes, because a man named Jesus told him he would see. If he walked by faith, then he gets to the pool, and the third thing happens: sight. He gets there, unsure if Jesus is a fraud, a fanatic, a lunatic, or the real deal. He gets there. He washes his faith, and his or washes his faith, <laughs> washes his face, and his faith is rewarded. He can now see that which he has never seen. His eyes, which would not allow light to enter, now light refracts off the eye in the way that it's supposed to and now he sees the colors of the world in full array because he walked by faith, hoping in the words and the promises of Jesus and he is changed and the world dances in front of him. Hope Leads to faith, faith leads to sight, and then sight leads to what? Understanding. Jesus comes back to him, if you remember the story from last week, comes back to him, and now he not only hears the voice, but he sees the face of Jesus. And Jesus dialogues with him and explains what has happened to him and explains who he is the Son of Man, the one predicted in the Old Testament, promised by the prophets, the Son of Man come in the flesh to save God's people. And he, and he believes and he worships. And his understanding belie- begins to grow. He doesn't know everything. <laughs> Nobody does. But he becomes a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, and his understanding grows. Things begin to make sense in a way that they never could have made sense before. This is faith seeking understanding. And this is the way we need to live to. He accepted the glory even before he understood it. And he followed that glory. And I bet not everything made sense before this man died. But it makes sense now. So the next thing I want to explore is something that still doesn't make sense to me, which is why God hinges his whole glory revelation project on it. Like his, what I'm trying to say there is, his ideas are so much better than mine. It's probably a good thing I don't understand why he did it this way. So what am I talking about? Next word, verse verse 4. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, wait, did he say we? Why did he say we when it's God who sent him? Okay, so displayed and we. This first word, display, this is the Greek word panaru, or panero, actually. Panero is used over and over again in John, and it means to cause, to become visible, to reveal, to expose publicly. To display or to make manifest. So you see that see, see kind of the thrust of this word? So Jesus says, they asked, why is he born blind? And he says, This came about so that God's works might be made came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed paneroed to Israel. That he might be paneroed to Israel. So, John the Baptist came and said, My job is to prepare the way of the coming Christ, the Messiah, so that he might be revealed, displayed to Israel. Okay. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus' half brothers, biological brothers, they kind of were mocking him, telling him, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go down to that, that feast that's happening in Jerusalem? and reveal yourself. So this is what they say in John 7-4. They say, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself, panero yourself, to the world. And they're mocking him. They're saying like, you need to go up to that festival. You need to make it known. Now they didn't believe in Jesus at the time. Now what's funny is Jesus, here in this, chapter shows how he plans to panero his glory. Now, one other reference that John has, to, uses this word panero, comes after Jesus' um, public trial, where he's accused of blasphemy, lying about God, lying about who he is. He's executed. He dies on the cross. And then on the third day, he raise, rises from the dead. And this is what John says in verse 21, 1. This is post-death, post-resurrection. John writes this. After this, Jesus revealed, paneroed himself again uh, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he paneroed, revealed himself in this way. Okay. So, the thing that John makes clear is that God is revealing, displaying, manifesting His glory to the world primarily through Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. The God-man Jesus Christ. And most explicitly, the nature and the character of who God is through the cross and the resurrection. That is the primary way in which the glory, not not just in the magnitude of it, but also uh, in the quality of it, is revealed to the world. So, you want to know what God's glory is like, you look to Jesus, the cross, dying for the sin of the world, the resurrection, the power over death itself. Okay? Now, but that doesn't mean it's the only way in which the works of God, which is the revealing of the glory, is manifest in the world. And this is the part that knocks me over every time I encounter it. And it's the clear teaching of Scripture. And I sometimes wish it wasn't there, but it's clear that Jesus and God seem to be saying that we are a part of that revealing project as well. He said it right there in verse 4. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. He does not say, I must do the works of him who sent me, which would make more grammatical sense. We must do the work of him who sent me while it is day. And this seems to be directed right at his disciples. His disciples are those who have hoped in him, have had faith in him to follow him, and have had their eyes open to some degree or another, and are growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. And he says, it's your guy's work, just like it's my work, that we must do this. Now, because John records this 20-some-plus years, maybe 30 years after Jesus death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, where Jesus went to heaven and said, I must go so that I can send the Spirit, so that all of you can be filled with my presence and my light, it would seem to me that the we doesn't just include those 12 original disciples, but any disciple here on out. That's me and you, if you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus. So how do disciples then participate in the glory revelation project? Well, I think John's helping us see that this story is a great example of how we participate. And it's actually not as complicated as you might think. I think sometimes we think it's so complicated to participate in the Glory Revelation project. Like, well, maybe I need to go get some training or education to go to seminary, train to be a pastor, or, or, or take a lot of Bible classes or something. Now, those can be, of course, helpful, and I did all that stuff too, and it's helped me a ton, But Jesus says it's way easier than that. It's quite clear. Uh, In fact, this man born blind wouldn't have been able to read, wouldn't have had much work experience, but he's really good at begging. He's really good at trusting on the grace of others. And this man becomes... A model or an example of how we participate in the glory revealing pro- process, which is Jesus says about him, I am going to reveal and display my glory through this man by changing him. So, in that sense, when we allow ourselves to be overshadowed by the Almighty and have his power and glory transform us through the Spirit, our job is complete. We become the display cases of God's glory in the world just by letting Him change us, just by letting Him heal us, just by letting Him free us from that which keeps us tied down. And then, just like the blind man, we are sent. Did you see that language? Look at this, look at this with me. It's a really interesting language that John wants us to see. And you know we, he wants us to see it because he calls it out. It says this, verse 6. After he said these things, this is Jesus, he, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and he spread the mud on the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him. Go. That's like an important word in Scripture. Go. He tells him to go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, and then he says this, which means, for those of us who didn't know this, some people would already know what Siloam means, which means sent. Go to the pool called sent. And so the man left and washed and had his sight removed. So this, the idea of being sent is so important here. John's calling it out so we don't miss it in case you know a lot of the people John was writing to weren't from Jerusalem or weren't from Israel, and so they might not have known that this is what this pool is. He's saying... This is God sending the blind man. Sending him what? On the mission God has given him to reveal God's glory, to display God's glory to the world. Go and wash in the pool called Sent, and you will display my glory to the world. This is how we are sent by God. This is how we participate in the work of God. living with the hope of Jesus' claims, walking in faith towards the restorative promises that he speaks into our ears and letting him transform us by the Spirit both inwardly and potentially outwardly unto his glory as our understanding and knowledge grow and our love for him swells up. This is the way we participate in God's mission. It's not that complicated, but that doesn't mean it's easy. God is asking you. Will you let me change you? I don't know. I kind of like the way I am. It's kind of working for me. I mean, I can see why the blind man will let him change, but me, things are going pretty well for me. Will you let God change you? If you answer yes to that question, you are now employed in the mission of God to do the works of God. That the Father sent the Son to do. You become little Christs in the world. That's what Christian means, to be a little Christ. You have been sent, and God will manifest His glory for the whole world to see in you. Will you let Him change you? Now, if you're saying to yourself, that doesn't make sense. Just rewind the video about 10 minutes and listen to what I said about making sense. It's gotta be more complicated than that. Nope. It must be. Nope. But I don't wanna change. Doesn't work like that. It's a fair question. If God is all about his glory, then why doesn't he choose a revelatory scheme that is less dependent... On our faith. Right? That's why it knocks me up. Like, if it's all dependent on my faith, walking out to be changed by him, it could take a while. Yeah. He's patient. The world... The eternity he wants is not just one in which he... Because he doesn't need it. <laughs> you see? That's why you got to go back... You're not giving him something he doesn't have. He wants to share his glory with the world. But the world rejects his glory. They want their own glory. And so he's sending you into the world to be a dis- display case for his kind of glory that changes you in the ways you might not even know you need to be changed so that people want to come to him and surrender to his glory so that they might live an eternal day with him and his glory. You see, God's better than me plan is better than me, his desires are better than mine he wants to share his glory but to share it he must be glorified so that more and more can come into his glory and willingly take his glory as their own it's not too simple it's not too easy it's God's plan Okay, so, if this is the way God has chosen to reveal and display his glory to the world, and if that includes him using each and every person who in hope and faith regains their sight and grows in understanding and becomes something that they weren't before, how is this glory to become most evident? Well, Again, the blind man's a great example. God's glory becomes most evident when transformation is most obvious. And this is where the idea of mud comes into it all. So verse 8 says this, After Jesus said these things, he spit on the ground, he made some mud from saliva and spread the mud on his eyes. And the word mud, if you just underline it, every t- it comes up so many times. Why are you talking about this mud? Brian touched on it a little bit last week. Go back to the, the creation account in Genesis. God loves turning mud into glory. God loves it. God loves turning mud into glory. Part of the reason why is that there is nothing that reveals the nature, character, and beauty of God's glory more than the frustration of evil. Let me say that again. There is nothing that reveals the nature, character, and beauty of God's glory more than the frustration of evil. Don't believe me? The cross. Case in point. What man and the devil meant to rob God's glory becomes the vehicle and the instrument of his glory around the world. You seen the symbol of the cross anywhere lately? God is most glorified in the frustration of evil so I wrote this week thinking about this what might be a haiku I hope Gregor's not here our resident (laughs) poet so so if this isn't a haiku don't worry about it this is a haiku in the Wayne's World sense for Wayne's World fans okay Human being, a bag of brokenness, a bag of glory. Let me explain. When Jesus found this poor man by the side of the road, he had nothing to offer the world. He had nothing to offer to Jesus. He was just a bag of brokenness. This is a true statement. This man was a bag of brokenness. But when Jesus shows up because Jesus sees what God sees, because Jesus is God, he sees the value that only the glory can see. And he sees that this man is not just a bag of brokenness, but a bag of glory. You might imagine Jesus picking up this bag And you might imagine in this bag, is just a bunch of broken pieces of once beautiful pottery. Just a bag of broken clay. He takes it back to his studio. He warms up the wheel and he takes this clay, and these broken pieces of clay, and he returns them to the mud that they first started as and he begins to do his work again. And he spins the wheel. And he returns and gives this broken bag of clay new purpose, a new glory. The purpose of revealing his glory as the master potter. This man is now a new creation. Something that the world could not see with him standing or sitting and begging by the side of the road. But only God could see. Human being, a bag of brokenness, a bag of glory. Second Corinthians three seven to eight says this. Now, if the ministry that brought death, chiseled in the letters of stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to gaze steadily on Moses' face because its glory which was set aside. Now here he's referring to Exodus, if you want to go look this up, chapter 34 verses 29 to 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets with the law written on them, and his face was shining because he'd been in the presence of God, he literally had the glory of God radiating off his face and it scared people. So that's what he's saying. But he's saying if that glory that came on the mountain, if that actually led to death because the law leads to death, how, he goes on, will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And that's what we're living in now, the age of the Spirit. Not the age of the law, but the age of the Spirit. How much more glorious? And then he goes on, if you jump down to Second Corinthians 3, 17 to 18, he goes on to say this, and this is a famous verse, you may have heard it. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. What we're being told here is that we are being transformed from one image of glory to another. By the master potter. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 18, you can go look up this and read the whole section, says, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in the hand of God, O house of Israel. And then Romans 9, 20 to 23, captures it so well. On the contrary, Paul says, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? In this story, and in each one of us, God sees us as a bag of brokenness and a bag of glory. And if we let God do his work through us, we are all on this same storyline, from mud to glory. God sees you for what you are, There's no no way around it. You are a sinner in need of mercy and grace. But he also sees you for what you can become, an object of his mercy, a displayer of his glory. God makes that all possible by sending the Son, Jesus Christ, who died to take on the wrath that was due for us and give us in exchange his righteousness and glory as a gift. And so what Ryan said last week just hit me because the only person that gets to an- oh man the only person that gets to answer this question is it fair for God to use me in this way? Is that fair? Like th- this man had it really hard. He was born blind. Is it fair that God would do that just to reveal his mercy and grace through me? Ryan said The only one who gets to answer that question is the blind man. He has a chance to get really angry at Jesus, really angry at God. Why'd you make me this way? Why'd you let me go through this? Why'd you give me this brain? Why'd you give me this body? Why'd you give me these parents? Why'd you put me in this city? This man doesn't say that. He doesn't cry foul. He doesn't cry injustice because he sees the glory standing in front of him. And he says, it's all worth it to know that man. It's all worth it. My bag of brokenness is all worth it to be used by the master potter for his glory I'd sign up again if you don't know why I'm crying right now come talk to me let's get coffee I want you to know the glory for who he is not what somebody else has said about him but I want him to reveal himself to you and if I can help in any way so that you can say like the blind man it was all worth it all the brokenness because he's given us all the glory a broken bag of clay in the potter's hands becomes a vessel for eternal glory to be used by God today and every day from here on out both now while it's still day and when the eternal day begins and we sit in God's eternal presence forevermore I'll sign up for that it's well with my soul Let's pray.